This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You guys ready to study God's Word together? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we come to another parable of Jesus we're going to unpack and, and study together this morning. As we, as we get started, I wonder if you would think about your life for a moment. I want you to think about, is there a person, uh, maybe there's a group of people, perhaps it's a family of people, maybe it's a family member, it could be a co-worker, it could be a cousin, a sister, a brother, a parent, but, but they at some point along the path of your life they wronged you, and they wronged you badly. And other people may look at your life and say, I'm not sure why you're so concerned about that. That's over. That's done with. Just suck it up and move on, right? That's what other people may be looking at. But you're looking at the reality of your life, and you're saying, but you don't know the hurt, and you don't know the pain, and you don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. And there are others around you who have fostered you in a, in a mindset of victimization that is giving you the right to feel the way that you do. And perhaps you have just held on to this and held on to this and feeling justified by your feelings and feeling justified by your bitterness, justified by your unforgiveness towards this person because of the gravity with which they wronged you. And you carry it and you carry it and carry it. Then there are others of you who simply, there are just people in your life, and, and it's just trite, trivial things, but man, you just carry it with you and you just go, man, that person's just dumb, that person's stupid, I don't even want them in my life. Man, every time I'm around them, they just do something dumb towards me, I don't even like them anymore. Or, or perhaps there's even churches that you've left because there was a, a bad situation there and you've just kind of harbored it and you just run from it. If only the Bible had something to say about these kinds of things, right? If only we had some instruction to go on to try to help us understand what to do with these types of heavy feelings. And I don't want for a moment to minimize your experiences this morning. I don't. I know hurt and I know pain. I know disappointment. I know regret. And I've experienced those as well. I don't want for a moment to take away the human element of this and just give you a picture of let go and let God just move on and just slap a happy face on. That's not what we're talking about this morning. But if and only if there were some level of instruction to help us understand the posture with which we are to approach other people when they wrong us. And Jesus gives us a big sermon illustration in Matthew 18 to help us understand as his people how we're supposed to act here. And in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, one of his disciples actually comes before him. And Peter, never letting an opportunity to go by to stand up and be the voice for the rest of the crowd to say what everybody else is probably thinking but everybody else didn't have the courage to ask. Peter just says, well, I'll do it. I'm the, man for the, I'm the man for the time. And so Peter begins the parable with a simple question. Verse 21 says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And so at the very beginning here, I want you to see the personal nature of Peter's question. He says, how often will my brother sin against me? Me, and I forgive him. Peter wasn't asking a hypothetical question. It wasn't a rhetorical question. It was a personal question. How often will he sin against me and I forgive him? And then Peter, thinking that he's rising to the occasion and doing something that's so radically different than everybody else, Peter says, as many as seven times, and Jesus responds to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, Peter thinks he's being extra generous because Jewish leaders only required a person to forgive someone the same mistake three times. And so Peter has not only done it three times, he's done two times three plus one just for added measure, right? I mean, this guy is a forgiving machine in his eyes. 
And he thinks he's done the right thing here. He thinks he's being radical because in the kingdom of God, everything's just radical. So for him, two and a half times is pretty radical. But Jesus answers, and Jesus' answer is far more radical than Peter ever thought. Jesus answers with lavish, extravagant grace. And when Jesus says 70 times 7, he's not telling us that we should have a meter or we should have the chalk on the sidewalk and just start etching until we get to 490 times. Jesus saying 70 times 7, if we're just looking for the multiplication table here and getting to 490 and thinking that once we hit almost 500, then that's the forgiveness meter. No, what Jesus is doing is he's answering in hyperbole. He's answering with hyperbole, thinking that you think seven? Well, let's just go seventh to the nth degree. Let's just go much past that. And what Jesus is ultimately telling us here is there is no forgiveness meter. It's ultimate. It's lavish. It's unending times. How many times we are to forgive someone who wrongs us? Now, in your notes, you will see here that we're going to look at some very specific Uh, principles for us to live our lives by in thinking about forgiving our brothers and sisters, forgiving those who on earth who would hurt us or harm us, wrong us. And as you see in your notes at the beginning up there, I say, as people of God's kingdom, dot, dot, dot. There's a big condition here. So what we're going to look at in verses 23 through 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant, this is not teaching just simply to the vast world of how we're supposed to act towards one another as human beings. Jesus isn't giving us a moral treatise on human behavior so that people apart from God could just simply find moral improvement of how we are to treat one another as neighbors. Look at the conditional clause at the beginning of verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be prepared. In other words, Jesus is saying, people who live in God's kingdom are to take this to heart. And the teaching principles I'm going to give you here, this is for my people. These are for people who have been bought, redeemed, who have been born again by faith in my work and by the blood of my cross. And belief in my resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus is saying is that as kingdom people who have been born again, who have been brought into the family of God, that there is a kingdom ethic for us that is different than the average person in the world. Because as we're going to make our way through this parable this morning, we're going to see that this is incredibly radical. And the average person who lives on your street or who lives on your floor in your building does not think this way naturally. And so it's important for us to see this conditional clause at the beginning of verse 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared. So as people of God's kingdom, this is for us. This is how we're supposed to think and act. So let's look at the parable and then we're going to see what Jesus is teaching us from it. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you 
if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I have to confess to you this morning that there are times as I'm reading the Gospels and the picture the Gospels paint of Jesus Christ is so radically different than the picture we as people have painted of Him that there are times where I read the Gospels and I simply stand back in amazement. And in my humanity, I am so tempted to wrestle in my heart. Is, is this really saying what I just read? I mean, is this Jesus? I mean, I thought Jesus was just the, uh, Jesus was the spiritual guru wearing the long road and sipping the latte and just, Jesus is my homeboy. He loves me. He just wants to hold me in his lap and, and just brush my hair. And Jesus would never say a harsh thing towards anyone or be hard. But you read the Gospels and there's a very hard picture that we see at times from Jesus' mouth. And, and rather than running away from that and, and trying to somehow mute the message of Jesus or to make Jesus' words impotent and make them less than what they are, we need to hone in and, and take heed to what he's saying because his words were radical in the first century and they're radical in the 21st. So let's unpack this. You see a very simple outline in your worship guides this morning. And let's look at the big picture truths that Jesus teaches us in this parable. As people of God's kingdom, here's truth number one. We have received extravagant grace from God. If you are in this room today, and you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sins, you have placed faith in Jesus, you have been born again by His Spirit, and you are a Christian this morning, a child of God through belief in that gospel, you have received extravagant grace from God. Now, where do we see this in the text? <clears throat> if you begin reading with me in verse 23, it says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him, owed him 10,000 talents. We see the extravagant grace from God because I want you first to consider this. Consider the great magnitude of your debt. Consider the great magnitude of your debt. The servant owed 10,000 talents. Now a talent was worth about 20 years worth of wages. Yes, you heard that correctly. A talent was worth about 20 years worth of wages for an average laborer in Jesus' time. And he says that this servant owed 10,000 of them. And so multiply 10,000 times 20. That's Greek for a whole lot of money. So to show the enormity of the servant's debt, what Jesus is doing here is he's using the largest monetary denomination, a talent of that time, and the largest common number of that time, which was 10,000, to make his point. What is Jesus doing? He's speaking in hyperbole, which he often does to make his spiritual point. This would have been billions of dollars in our current day. If you were to translate it into today's monetary values, billions and billions of dollars. The point is this. The servant would never be able to pay it. He would never be able to pay the debt. Consider the magnitude of this servant's debt. And so in Jesus' parable, he says, so along with his, he along with his family are to be thrown into prison while his possessions and goods are sold so at least some of the debt could be paid. Here's the reality this morning. Spiritually speaking, this parable is pointing to the magnitude of your sin debt before God. Walk through the scriptures with me and consider the magnitude of our sin debt, your sin debt, my sin debt, the debt of sin your neighbor owes God this morning because we have failed him in our sinfulness. The psalmist in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, here's what the psalmist says in the Old Testament. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good? See, the world says be a good person. The Bible says there is none who does good. 
The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And again, the psalmist says, there is none who does good, not even one. Maybe the psalmist was just having a bad day and he just experienced someone cut him off in traffic and he was just lashing out. Well, let's look at Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Solomon, the man who is considered one of the wisest men who ever lived on the face of the earth. Solomon says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Well, Chris, let's get out of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is dark and dismal. It's depressing. Let's get to the New Testament. What about some words from Jesus? Okay, let's go there. Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 18, that no one is good except God alone. And then the apostles They would even sum up Jesus' teaching this way. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, after recounting Psalm chapter 14, verse 3, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the picture. As human beings, yes, we are created in the image of God, and that makes us a very prized possession on earth of God. We are the most valued of all creation that God has created us, and that should encourage us because out of all the galaxies and the universes, The Milky Way, the planets, the comets, and everything that we see on earth and the grandeur of creation. That it is man. It is woman. It is children. It is human beings who created in the image of God. And that makes us more valuable than anything else that's ever been created. We are a very prized, valued creation. At the same time, the scriptures say that although we are very prized, we are also very corrupt. We are corrupt in our hearts. We are corrupt in our thinking. We are corrupt in our actions. Even in our dreams, when we're not cognitively thinking in our minds, our, 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 our consciences take us places. Our spirits take us places that are very dark, and very sinful, and are very opposed to God. And the scriptures make this plain from beginning to end, from Old Testament to New. And so we, like the servant, have a great debt before God. A great debt that can never be paid. You see, he is perfectly pure. Perfectly holy. One whose eyes have never experienced sin, nor dwell in the midst of sin. But we are sinfully corrupt. We have a spiritual debt in the trillions this morning. And So what we do in our desperation, we try to plead our case. We try to plead our cause. Well, God, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back with the the currency of my good works. And I'll even add a little bit of interest on top of that by going to church or going to some Bible studies or participating in some spiritual disciplines. And we come to God like we do a car salesman or a jeweler or perhaps the university's business office or national grid. And we ask God, can we work out a payment plan over the course of my lifetime? But then Isaiah 64 verse 6, we're confronted with that great passage from the Old Testament. Where the prophet Isaiah, who's recounting the words of God, says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I won't spell it out as graphically as the text is really saying today. I'll keep it G-rated this morning. But the prophet Isaiah is saying that your good works, your righteous deeds you are trying to do to earn God's favor, are like a dirty, used menstrual cloth. And I'll let you do the common day translation for that. And so what God does is He looks at your good works, He looks at your righteous deeds that you're trying to do to earn His favor, and He says you're trying to pay a debt you'll never pay. You're trying to work out a payment plan that's worth so much more than you could ever pay, and even that, you're trying to pay it back with counterfeit currency. It's absurd. You'll never pay it back. That's the point of Jesus this morning. So consider the great magnitude of your debt, but also consider this. Here's the good news this morning. Consider the great mercy of our God. Consider the great mercy of our God. 
Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there before God where you know that you have blown it big time? And you feel the weight of your sin? You feel the magnitude of it? And you're coming before God and you're on your knees and you're pleading with God, have mercy on me. I'll pay you everything. And look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Pity. Why would the master negotiate a payment plan for a debt that he knows is impossible for the servant to repay? There are two options for that master. Put the servant away forever or forgive the debt. You see, the master in this parable of Jesus is a picture of God. The master here is pointing us towards God, pointing us towards his ultimate mercy, his ultimate forgiveness of sinners like you and me. And it's pointing us back even to Psalms like Psalm 130 verses 4 through 5, which is a psalm that I like to recount a lot in my personal prayer life to God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Have you ever felt like that? I mean, God, if you, if you are going to hold sin over the life, over the mind, over the heart of a human being, if you were going to keep score, which one of us could stand? But here's the big but. In Scripture, we like big buts. In theology, we really like them because they're huge for us, theologically speaking. But with you... There is forgiveness that you may be feared. Who could stand if you kept score, God? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, spiritually, God actually offers a third option. It's not actually that He simply forgives your sin debt. See, see we think about that sometimes. That, well, God's just there. He is just one big forgiveness machine. It's like going to the casino and putting in quarters and we just pump out forgiveness. It's his job. It's just what he does. And if we're, if we're just lost in our sin too much and we become too ignorant, we think it's what God owes us as human beings. It's not that God just simply forgives the debt. It's not that he's just, sorry, it's not just that he just lets us out of prison. He then forgives it. But then he goes a step further than the master in the parable. See, this master in the parable released him from prison and forgave him the debt. But there's one more step that God did for you and for me in the magnitude of our sin debt. He actually sends his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the debt for you. See, it's one thing to forgive the debt and say, well, you don't owe this anymore. It's another thing for someone to step forward and say, no, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. And Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you were supposed to live, and he died the heinous death you were supposed to die. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's what theologians for ages have called the great exchange. And Ephesians 1, 7-8 tells us that it is not that God did this begrudgingly. It's not that God did this regretfully. But look at what Ephesians 1 says. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. He lavished his blessings. He lavishes his grace upon us. He doesn't give us just enough grace to get us by. It's like he takes our little cup and he puts it under a huge waterfall and that water just bubbles over our cup. That's the picture 
of God's grace and his mercy towards you this morning. You see, it's not just that your debt has been abolished, that it's been forgotten or just simply ignored. It's been paid. Every penny paid in full this morning, not by a talent, not by a dollar, nor by a credit card, nor PayPal or Apple Pay. It's been paid by the currency of the blood of Jesus Christ. The magnitude of your debt was great. But the mercy of your God was greater. Know today that if you've been born again, if you've placed faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian through repentance and faith, then you have received extravagant, lavish grace from God. And this grace is not without effect. You see, there are those of us who think that this whole relationship with God thing, it's just about you and Jesus. There's no one else involved. Just as long as you have your sin taken care of and you can reside with God forever and eternity, that that is the end to which salvation points. That is the end to which mercy points. But that's not where the parable ends. You go on in the parable and you see that this guy is released... His debt is forgiven, and then he encounters another human. And he encounters someone who also owes him money, and he does not respond in like kind the way in which God responded to him. Instead, the response of the forgiven servant is ludicrous. What does he do? Once his debt is paid, he approaches one of his underlings who owed him a debt that was not insignificant to him, but was measly compared to the one he owed. If you go on and look at verses 30 and 31, what we learn is that, uh, that this guy was owed a few denarius, a few denarii, about a hundred of them. A denarius was a day's wage, a day's wage for a labor. And so if you take a hundred days worth of work, that would translate to about three and a half, four months worth of work for you or me today. And so if you just have a measly salary in the room, that might be worth 10, 12,000 bucks. Not insignificant, but when compared to the billions that this servant owed, it was, how should we say it? Chump change. And what's the response to his debtor? Pay it, right? That's the picture. You owe me. This would be like someone paying off today the $20 trillion U.S. debt, the $20 trillion U.S. debt, completely paid off, and the IRS chases after you for a dollar. And most of us would say, wouldn't put it past them, right? <laughs> but that's the picture. The servant clearly demonstrates that he had been forgiven much but was willing to forgive very little. The principle from Jesus is simply this. Becoming his followers is not simply about a right standing with him only, but it's also about a change in attitude and behavior towards others. So here's the picture. Not only have we received extravagant grace from God, Jesus would command us through this parable that we now extend extravagant grace to others. We now extend extravagant grace to others. Through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God declares you righteous so that you will then live righteously. God lavishly extends mercy to you so that you will now go lavishly extend mercy to others. God forgives you much so that you will go and forgive others unconditionally. So the picture that Jesus gives us here is that you and I are not to hoard God's forgiveness. We're not to stockpile it away in the cavernous basements of our hearts. Instead, it's, it's a greater picture of eating and exercising. If you just simply hoard food into your body, and you just sit in a 
chair or sit on a couch and live a sedentary lifestyle and you're just taking in calories but you never burn calories then we will be considered a physically obese person probably we take in bodily fuel so that we can burn that fuel through caloric intake and then expending it. In the same way, God pours into us grace. He pours into us mercy, not to stockpile it, but to burn it off and to go spend it on other people and extend it towards others. And and I love the concessions that the scriptures make in the New Testament because Jesus concedes the fact that people are sinful. I mean, do you see that? I mean, Jesus does not have to teach perfect people to forgive perfect people. Jesus makes the concession that you're a sinner. He makes the concession that you live with other sinners and you work with other sinners. Jesus doesn't give the expectation that you're going to be saved and then all hurt and wrongdoing are going to cease. Jesus is teaching about people who are a part of the kingdom of heaven makes the fact known that you're going to live among sinful people. So here's what you got to do among sinful people. We don't hoard it. We have to extend it. He gives it, we extend it. Let me show you three things here that I believe we see in this text. Why we forgive others. I mean, the question's why. Is it just simply because it's what we're supposed to do? I really don't believe God operates that way. God doesn't give us things to do just simply to do them. There's purpose behind it. And I see at least three purposes in this parable of why God has written into the code and economy of his followers to lavishly forgive others who wrong us. Number one, because we need a reminder of receiving God's grace. We need a reminder of receiving God's grace. Go down to verse 32. This servant is released. He goes and demands payment from one of his underlings. And then look at the master's response in verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. What is he doing? He's reminding him what he did for him. This morning, when we forgive unconditionally those who wrong us, we should be reminded in that moment of the extravagant grace, the extravagant mercy God extended towards us. We need a reminder. And the reality is, if you don't willingly and lavishly forgive others their offenses towards you, then you're showing that you have forgotten how much God has lavishly forgiven you. You've forgotten the magnitude of your debt. You've forgotten the mercy of your God. So as a reminder of receiving God's grace, extend God's grace. A second reason we forgive others. Because we need a demonstration of receiving God's grace. Yes, we need a reminder, but we also need a demonstration of receiving God's grace. Look at verse 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Hey, remember what I did for you? Should you have not gone and done the same thing? You see, when you forgive someone else their wrongs against you, especially when it doesn't make a lick of sense, When people look at you and say, I don't understand how you can just forgive that. I don't understand how you can be reconciled to a person who would do that towards you or who would say that towards you or who would say that about your mama, right? I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. See, when you do that, you are demonstrating that you have indeed received God's grace. Because you're doing something, humanly speaking, that doesn't make any sense at all. And you're doing something that does not come naturally to you at all. 
What's natural is for you to hold the grudge. What is natural is for bitterness and resentment to grow inside of you. That's natural. That makes sense. But when you forgive, you are demonstrating that God has lavishly extended his mercy towards you. And what you're doing, in essence, is you are validating your own experience of forgiveness. Did you hear that? When you forgive others the wrong they have done towards you, you are validating your own experience of forgiveness. You are passing the test of what it means to be a disciple. Flip over with me to 1 John. 1 John writes a lot about this proving to be a disciple. If you haven't read the book of 1 John in a while, maybe that's something you want to do this afternoon or this week. It's a short book. But John spends so much time in this epistle to the church at Ephesus, reminding them what new life in Jesus looks like and challenging them to prove their Christianity and prove God's working in their heart by the outworking of the way they treat each other. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, listen to what he writes. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We could go on and read this entire chapter. He's going to unpack this further, but the key thing I want you to see here is verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We prove to the world that we have left our sin and we have entered the kingdom by the special love we have between brothers and sisters in the church. And that would include forgiving them their wrongs and having mercy upon them. Go over to chapter 4 and look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. For if he does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What's the picture here? The picture here is you cannot say that you have been forgiven by God. You cannot say you have received extravagant grace from God and hoard up resentment, bitterness, and hate towards your brother, towards your neighbor. You don't pass the test of what it means to be a disciple. So we forgive others because we need a reminder of God's grace. We forgive others because we need a demonstration of receiving God's grace. And lastly, we might be tempted not to forgive. Or is it just me? We might be tempted, you might be tempted not to forgive. So, a third reason we forgive others is because we need a warning of receiving God's judgment. We need a warning of receiving God's judgment. Look at verses 34 and 35. And in anger, his master delivered him into the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 6 after he's given us the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, verse 14, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here's the warning. Here's what Jesus is basically getting at. Jesus is basically telling us That if you have come into new life in Him, and your life is characterized by a constant sense of not extending mercy and grace and forgiveness towards your brother or towards your sister, towards your mother, towards your father, towards your neighbor, if your life is constantly patterned by that pattern, then you need to look inside your heart. Because perhaps it's revealing that you've never truly been forgiven by God. Perhaps you've never truly passed from death into life. Perhaps you've not truly been saved. Perhaps you're truly not born again. 
Because a born-again person, a person who has received the extravagant grace from God, cannot go through their life just simply harboring resentment, bitterness, and unforgiveness towards those who have wronged us. Now, I don't want for a moment to minimize hurt and pain. I want you to hear my heart this morning, brothers and sisters. I know it's hard. I know people's words and their actions are hurtful. They can even destroy us if not careful. I'm not telling you that forgiveness means that it takes all the pain away. I'm not saying that simply forgiving someone means that trust walls are immediately rebuilt. I'm not suggesting that it will be easy and then tomorrow or next week everything's just back to normal as if it never happened. Not suggesting that at all. I'm not suggesting that there's not a healing process for when someone has hurt us or wronged us and we've confessed or we've forgiven and they've... I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I am suggesting because I believe Jesus is teaching it, is that if you're just simply sitting in the mire of your sin and hurt and wrong, and through obstinacy and disobedience saying, I can never forgive them, I can never forget it, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Corey ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who helped many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. Perhaps you've heard of her before. Uh, if you haven't, I would really encourage you to read a biography of, uh, of Corey. She is, she is a giant in the faith, especially of the 20th century. And she told of not being able to forget a wrong that had been done to her. And, and she had said that she had forgiven the person, but she kept rehashing the incident in her mind over and over again and therefore couldn't sleep. Finally, Corey cried out to God for help in putting the problem to rest. And, and she says this, His help came to me in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor. And I confessed my failure to him after two sleepless weeks. And, and here's what she said his response was. Up in the church tower is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope... The bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong, slower and slower until the final ding and it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the peals of the old bell slowing down. And she writes, and so it proved to be true. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings, when the subject came up in my conversations, but the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out of them. That They came less and less often and at the last stopped altogether. And then she writes this closing challenge. We can trust God, not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. This morning, Jesus is teaching us through the parable of the unforgiving servant. He's teaching us that we have extreme, received extravagant grace and mercy from God. And therefore, we, do, we are to extend extravagant mercy and grace to others who wrong us. And it is a defining. This is not a secondary matter. This is not a tertiary matter. This is a major issue for Jesus because he hits on it multiple times in the Gospels. It is a defining trait and characteristic of Christian discipleship. So I want to ask you some questions this morning as we prepare to close. The first question is, are you forgiven by God? Are you forgiven by God? Because see, here's the thing. You cannot appropriately or in a godly sense, 
forgive others the way in which God wants you to forgive others if you haven't been forgiven by God. And, and how are you forgiven by God? You confess your sin. You agree with Him that you have a great sin debt. You agree with Him that the magnitude of your debt is great. And you confess that sin to Him. You release that sin to Him. You agree with Him that the way you've lived your life is wrong and contrary to His ways. You repent, is what the Bible says. And you place faith in His Son, His perfect Son, who lived that perfect life you were supposed to live and died the punishing death you were supposed to die, but rose victoriously over the grave to a new life so that if you would repent and place faith in Him, He will give you that new life and citizenship in His kingdom and then put inside of you His Spirit by whom you may now forgive others. One theologian said it this way, and I'll paraphrase him. You sin against a rock, and you're not guilty. You sin against a man, you're really guilty. You sin against God, you're infinitely guilty. And so first this morning, ask this question. Are you forgiven by God? Second question is this, are you forgiving towards others? Are you forgiving towards others? Are you the type of person when someone wrongs you, it might be a little thing, and you just want to hold that against them for the remainder of your friendship. And you want to hold it against them and you want to leverage it against them. It may be in conversation, it may be in relationship, Every time you enter a room with them, it's just awkward because you can't handle it. And then what you do is you just let that fester and you let it build. It metastasizes like cancer. It spreads. Or are you the type of person who you are forgiving? You are forgiving towards others. Someone wrongs you. Someone messes up. And rather than wanting to make them pay, you're, you're so quick to say, you know what? God, God forgave me a great magnitude of debt. How could I not forgive you the wrong that you've done towards me? I don't pretend for a moment this comes easy. But walking with Jesus, it should become increasingly easier to extend that grace and extend that mercy because it's what gospel-changed people do. And I truly believe this, brothers and sisters, as we constantly remind ourselves on a daily basis the magnitude of our debt before God, that releases us and pushes us far more quickly to forgive others around us. You see, like the guy in the parable, oftentimes we don't want to forgive our neighbor. We don't want to forgive our brother or sister because we've forgotten the debt the magnitude of debt that we owed before God. You remind yourself of that often. I believe you'll be much more quick to forgive others their wrongs. This morning, I, I want to encourage you to really do business with God in your hearts. This is one of those teachings from the scriptures that hits and zings every one of us right at the core of who we are. This morning, I want to encourage you as our team comes and, and as we respond in song, I want to encourage you to examine your heart as these words are being sung over us or as we sing them. Ponder your position before God. We're going to be singing a song called Before the Throne of God Above this morning. Consider and ponder the, your position that the only reason that you can sing this song with a smile on your face, the only reason you can have a clean conscience because of everything that you've done, in light of everything you've done or said this week, ponder your position is because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. And then translate that to your heart and pray asking God, Father, with the grace and the mercy I've received by your Spirit, would you empower me to just pour that out on others this week? And it might mean this afternoon you need to make a phone call. 
It might mean this week you need to have a cup of coffee. You need to sit down and have a conversation and look someone in the eye and say, in light of everything that Jesus has done for me, I forgive you. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through reconciliation, would you walk with me forward now? That's what gospel people do. That's what people of the kingdom do. Father, we turn to you this morning and we recognize that we need you. None of us in this room forgives naturally. None of us in this room can go through wrongs and awkward moments on our own. But it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us that we can now extend mercy towards others. And so I pray first of all, Father, for the heart in here who has never experienced forgiveness from you. They've never repented of their sins. They think that they're unworthy. They think that you won't heal them. They're ashamed. Father, I pray today that they would turn from their sins. They would confess it to you. And I pray like a shower over a dirt-stained body that you would just shower them with your grace today. And you would clean them. And for the first time in their life and their heart, they would feel and know that they are clean. And then, Lord, I pray for that person. They're harboring it this morning, my Lord. They're just holding on to that hurt, that pain, that bitterness, and that regret. By the power of the Spirit in them, Father, I pray that their chains would be unshackled. Their hands would be unshackled, their chains would be unfettered, and they would be released to let go of that bell and to go and ask for forgiveness or to forgive others. And Lord, I pray that they would see the power of the gospel at work in relationships as you make them right. So Lord, we look to you to heal us, to challenge us. You work as you see fit in the name of Jesus. Amen.